Lord, we turn that song this morning into a prayer because we come now to the book that is sufficient, that is authoritative. There's no error here. We can take these promises to the bank for all of eternity. We can stand upon them, and we need them. And we don't know half of them, and some days we believe less. So help us, Lord. Forgive us for walking by sight instead of by faith in these promises that are all yes and amen in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we come to your word in this book of Deuteronomy, and we ask as the psalmist asked in Psalm 119, open our eyes that we would behold wondrous things out of your law. Show us in the Old Testament your glory. Teach us in the Old Testament to know your ways and show us in the Old Testament our Lord Jesus Christ, for we need him every hour. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there is a map that is in your uh, insert, and we're going to try to get it a little bit uh, darker, if you guys could, up here, less glare off my head so that you can see the laser pointer up here, hopefully. This map will be up quite a bit, and uh, refer to it as we go so that we know where we're, where we're moving. My daughter Hannah is hoping to uh, be a history and English uh, double major this next year, and she's currently taking a church history class. And I just want to remind us all here this morning that the study of history is so very important. Winston Churchill said this, he said, quotes, those that fail to learn history are doomed to repeat it. Let me take a sip of water after. In the book of Deuteronomy, the people of Israel, after 38 years, they've been wandering in the wilderness, and, and finally, they are poised on the edge of the promised land, just east of the Jordan, and they are there, and Moses is up, and he is preaching. The whole book of Deuteronomy he is preaching. He is preaching three sermons to encourage and to exhort the people of Israel to take the land. The first sermon is in chapters 1 through 4. It's a sermon to remember the past sin and the past victory. And then his second sermon in the book of Deuteronomy is to remember the present obligations. And then the third sermon towards the end of Deuteronomy is to remember the future hope, so that the people of Israel, remembering the past, 
recognizing the present and with hope of the future, they would be encouraged and exhorted to grab hold of God and to have faith and to move on that faith and to take the land, unlike their mom and dads who died in the wilderness. So in Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses again is helping that new generation of the children of Israel remember the past sin, specifically of their parents of that previous generation. You remember it. They had gotten on the map, well, it's, not, it's coming up, they had gotten right here to Kadesh Berea, right by the gold, where it's paradise. They had gotten to the gold of Kadesh Berea, and they were at the south end of the promised land. They were about to take the land, and they had 12, they had those spies that came back, and, the, and 10 of those 12 came back with a bad report. They're too big, the cities are too tall, and because they were afraid, they started, they, they did not believe the promises of God. Instead, they grumbled and they, they blame shift. They blamed everybody else, including and especially the leaders. But Moses is saying, look, let's not make that mistake. Let's have faith. Let's remember God. Let's remember what he did to take us out of Egypt, that, that God was present with us. He was with us, and we need to believe and trust in the Lord our God, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 32. But instead, he says, do you remember what happened? Your parents, they did not believe. They disbelieved. And God said, go take the land, and he said, we will not take it. And then if God said, if that's the way it's going to be, then there's going to be consequences for your sin. And they're like, Consequences? We'll take it. We'll take the land. We'll go right now. No, it's too late. You can't take it. So when he says to take it, they don't take it. When he says not to take it, they try to take it. And they get absolutely eviscerated, literally, by the Amorites. And that's where we're at right now at the end of chapter 1. They're tucking their, their tails between their legs. And let me just show you. Instead of heading north into the promised land, they head south from Kadesh Berea, and they're in this circle right here, and they're wandering in the desert. And so in chapter 1, he's, Moses says, you've got to remember the past sin. But praise God, we come to chapter 2, where we remember the past victory. But in between the past sin... And the past victory, since it's not about us, it's about God, the, con the connection between the past sin and the past victory is the character of God himself. We have to remember God. Now listen, catch this. To press forward, we must remember the unchanging character of our God as evidenced in the past. Let me say that again. It, in order to press forward, we must remember the unchanging character of our God as evidenced in the past. And in our passage, there are four aspects of the unchanging character of God that Moses highlights for us in verses 1 through 23. Four aspects of the character of God. First, God 
we got to remember this from the past. God is merciful to His people. How this is a shocking passage. Put your seatbelt on. I hope you get excited. I think you're, how is he going to make sense of this passage? God is merciful to His people. The shock here is that mercy is connected to the 38 years of wandering in the wilderness in the past. So, God is merciful first by relenting after 38 years. By relenting. Look at verse 1. Then we turned and set out for the wilderness by way to the Red Sea as the Lord spoke to me. And we circled Mount Seir for many days. Yeah, many days. 38 years. That's 13,832 days they went south instead of north and circled in the wilderness. And you say, well, what happened? There's only one verse on all of the wilderness wanderings that the book of Numbers takes up at length, and we're only going to get one verse on it? Yes. And I want you to see that as a mercy. <laughs> Not only a mercy to our exposition, but a mercy to our lives. That God sometimes sums up our failures with one verse and moves on. He relents. He relented after 38 years. And that's a mercy. Now, I want you to look at verses 2 and 3. I love this. And the Lord spoke to me saying, "Uh, You have circled this mountain long enough. You've circled this mountain long. Now, turn north. Turn north. The time of discipline is over. It's been long enough. It's time to try again. Yes, there's failure. Yes, there's consequences for sin. But our God is merciful. It's a time for a second chance. Discipline is cut short. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful in my own life that God is merciful by relenting with the consequences of my own sin. That that the loving discipline of my Father is not forever. He wants to teach me. He wants to show me. But it's a mercy that He relents. And that he says, you have circled this mountain long enough. My three favorite words in the first three verses, now turn north. Go north. South was the place of wilderness. South was away from the promised land. Now turn north. There's so much hope in those words for our lives. Turn north. Set your eyes back on the promises. Set your eyes back on the promised land. There's a new generation, a same God in this, for this new generation, a God of grace, a God of mercy, and praise the Lord, the God of second chances. 
So we see his mercy by relenting after 38. And secondly, we see his mercy by providing through the 38 years. By providing through. Verses 3 through 5, as they head north, they're commanded to pass through the territory of the sons of Esau, and they're not to provoke the sons of Esau because God gave that land to Esau as a possession. We pick it up now in verse 6. Take a look at verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 2. You shall buy food from them with money so that you may eat, and you shall also purchase water from them with money so that you may drink. For, listen to this, the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. In the 38 years of discipline and wandering. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. The mercy of God by providing through the 38. What does Moses first remind the people of Israel about? The 38 years of grumbling, the 38 years of rebellion, the 38 years of unbelief of the first generation, is that what he reminds them about? No. He says, and when you're traveling north, you're going to have plenty of food and plenty of water and plenty of money to buy food and water. You know why? Because I've provided it. I've provided surplus for you. Verse 7. Because, here's why, because, here's why you have money to get from the lands that you pass through and buy stuff so you can keep on going. Because the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. Even in discipline. Even in the wanderings. So in the wilderness wanderings, God provided for Israel every single day. Every single hour. Come on. We're not going to turn to numbers and all God's people shouted. The manna from heaven. The water from the rock. The shoes that didn't wear out. He miraculously provided for them out of mercy, out of love, out of chesed, covenant faithfulness. He will keep His promises. He is with them. And He's not distanced in the provision. You know, just shazamming them from a distance because He's sick of them or doesn't like them anymore. No, He says, and not only have I provided and you have plenty of money, but I was with you. I was with you in that desert. There's an intimacy here. There's an intimate knowledge. I have known your wanderings. I have seen the tears stream down your faces. I know the hurts of the whole thing and the disappointment of it all. There's a God here who not only provides, but He gets it. He understands and not only understands from a distance, but He's there. He's been with you. And he's blessed all that you have done. I've been present with you. Why don't you believe it? You've got to believe it if you're going to take the land. You've got to have right thoughts about me. 
that I'm going to be present with you as a warrior, that I'm going to be present with you as a father, that I'm going to carry you as a father carries a son in the wilderness wandering, that I'm going to be present with you as a guide with the Shekinah glory of the cloud and the fire by night. I was those three things when you were a sinner and you were wandering and you were going nowhere in your sin and in your discipline. I was those things then and I will be now when you march forward by faith. This is the mercy of God. In all these years, you have not lacked a thing. This is when they were in sin and rebellion. What? Well, it's true for us. God will never leave us or forsake us, even in our sin. And maybe especially in our sin, we need to remember that all things work together for, except our sin and our failure. No, all things. God loves His people and works it together for the good. It's incredible for those who are the called according to His purposes. And so the mercy of God is connected to this long-suffering and patience with the Israelites, even in light of provocation and neglect of their wholehearted, faithful pursuit of Him. And Moses says, you failed, you wandered, but I was with you. I'm a God of mercy. I'm your father, and I will carry you. I'm your father, but I, and I will discipline you. Is any good dad, come on, dads, moms, is any good mom and dad, we're having a parenting class, knows it's a mercy to be disciplined. And that leads me to my third point. Um, how does he demonstrate his mercy? By warning after 38. God's a loving father. Discipline, those years of wandering, God is disciplining according to Hebrews 12.10 for our good so that we may share in his holiness. So I want you to look at verse 13. He says, Now arise and cross over the brook Zered yourselves. So we crossed over the brook Zered. And Chad, if I can have the map up. So now they're heading up. Finally heading north, yes, and right about here, between where, where between Edom and Moab, there's a brook from the south of the Dead Sea on the border of, of the southern border of Moab. That's where we're at when I'm at verse 13. At that point, they've got enough traction where Moses is saying, you are moving, praise God. Faith is working, and you are finally obeying. This is so... Amazing. And now that I've encouraged you, let me warn you some, about something. And so there's a grace and a mercy of warning right here in verse 13. Now arise and cross over the brook Zered yourselves. So we crossed over the brook Zered. That's at the southern border of the land of Moab. They're heading north. There's movement. And as they're moving, he says, let me, we're about to cross to the Red Sea where we can't see back and you won't be able to look south with a reflective glance to that wilderness. It's all going to be north now. And I want you to take one last hard look at the past and it's a mercy in our lives to warn us after 38 years of wandering. This reflective glance backwards. Look at it in verse 14. Now, the time that it took for us to come to 
from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was 38 years until all the generation, watch this, of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Moreover, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from within the camp until they all perished. The first generation, and it only highlights the parents and specifically the men of war. The first generation of parents would not enter into the promised land except for those who followed the Lord fully, Joshua and Caleb, and then the children of that generation. But the people that he warns them about are the men of war. And so he's reminding them mercifully of two things, of the seriousness of sin, and secondly, of their complete inability apart from faith in God. That's why he's hiding the men of war. He's saying this sarcastically, I think, as one commentator notes. I think he's right. It's sarcastic because they should have been men of war. That first generation should have taken the land. They should have trusted God. They had their warriors. They even had their own strength and their own war. The men of war should have taken the land. But guess what, Israel? You're moving forward by faith. There's no men of war left. You only have me as you move forward. You have no ability in yourself. The men of war are gone. The warriors are gone. They have all perished. How in the world would they take the land? It's a brand new beginning. I'll tell you how you take the land. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust me. So God is merciful to his people by relenting after 38 years, by providing through the 38 years, and by warning them after 38 years. Secondly, Moses highlights the unchanging character of God. Secondly, God is faithful to his promises. Now, so the shock of the mercy was it was during the wilderness. The shock of God being faithful to his promises, are you ready? Is that he's not talking about Israel. Okay, what do I mean? It's remarkable because whenever, yes, we've heard it again, the Abrahamic promise. Can we get on to the next chapter? We've heard about the promises made to Israel, the covenant-keeping God who set his love upon Israel. But here, God is faithful to promises to other groups of people. And so let's look at that. Number one, he's faithful to his promises to Esau. Look at it in verse 3. Okay, verse 3 of Deuteronomy 2, you have circled this mountain long enough, now turn north and command the people saying, you will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful, do not provoke them, for I will not give you any of, your, of their land, even as little as a footstep. How much of God's promises does he keep? All of them are... He doesn't get, he's not going to give them one inch of the land that he's promised for some other people. Not one inch. Because I've made the promises to those people. Because I have given Mount 
Seir to Esau as a possession. That is the language of, of God in a state of giving as a possession. That's the same language that he would speak of the covenant people of God, Israel, in this giving of the promised land of Canaan. Same language about Esau. Well, remember that, come on, let's just review. Some of you are new to the Word of God. Remember, we have Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was also the son of Isaac, but he wasn't the promised son, but he was given a dwelling place in Genesis chapter 27 in the fine print, verses 39 and 40. And God doesn't forget the fine print in his word towards us. And he's given him past tense, this land. Question, does God keep his promises? This is not the people that he has even set his love upon. Verse 8, so we passed beyond our borders, the sons of Esau, who lived in Seir, away from the Arabah road, away from Elath and Ezion Geber, and we turned and passed through by the way of the wilderness of Moab. Okay, so now, okay, map up there. Heading north, Edom is Esau's land, that's first. Now they go up and they pass into Moab. Moab and the Ammonites, Moab and Ammon, are going to be Lot's connection. Lot was the nephew of, and it's always good to be connected to, Abraham. We are, as Gentiles, in the fine print of the Abrahamic covenant connected to Abraham and the precious promises. If you're connected to Abraham, you've got some promises. Isn't that interesting? So to Lot. Lot is the nephew of Abraham. Did Lot earn it? How's this? Lot had lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. Good choice. And he and his daughters fled to the east and lived in some caves. But there was some pretty bad sin with a drunken father in the caves. And they gave birth to two sons, Moab and Ben-Ami. Ammon, these are the sons of Lot. And the blessing of God comes upon them because of their familial connection to Abraham. And here's this hint that if we're somehow grafted into the precious promises of Abraham, Romans chapter 11, just a hint, a whiff of that, the connection to the Abrahamic promises is huge. And so they get through Esau's land, and that's really good. They cross that brook that I told you about. They enter the land of Moab, and we pick it up in verse 9. Verse 9, then the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab. So now we're up to the next land. Do not, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession. Why? Because I have given our, that is another name for Moab, to the sons of Lot as a possession. Does God go back on his promises? 
Does he fulfill the fine print of the covenants? Moab, is Moab a worshiper of Yahweh, even remotely? Their god, their false god was called Chemosh. Nasty. Nasty sort of stuff. This false god to God is neither here nor there. For God is truly still Moab's God, and he rules the nations. And third, Ammon. To Ammon. He's faithful to Ammon. Verse 13. Now arise and cross over the brook Zered yourselves. So we crossed over the brook Zered. I'm going to read quickly. Now the time that it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Moreover, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from within the camp until they all perished. So it came about when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people that the Lord spoke to me saying, today you shall cross over Ar, the border of Moab. Okay, now they're going, now when you come opposite the sons of Ammon, now we're in, entering into the land of Ammon, okay, up on the map, here's where we're at. Okay, we're going up, there's the Ammon, Ammonites right here, they're not going to go right in this region. Can't, go, can't deal with the Ammonites. I'm not, don't harass them. Don't provoke them. For I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession. Why? Because I've given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. So they continue north. They head into Ammon land. And they don't provoke them. And they don't harass them. And God has promised that land to the sons of Lot. Israel has been asked in chapter 1, don't go up, don't do it. Don't fight them. I'm not with you. They disobey. Same test. Don't fight them. I've given them to someone else. Will, will this next generation obey? Answer, yes. They did not fight the lands they were commanded not to fight. They are now walking by faith. They are now moving from faith. They are following from faith. They are listening from faith. They are obeying from faith. And God is faithful to his promises. God is the God of nations. Milcom, the patron deity of the land of Ammon. Nasty guy. Milcom, the false god of Ammon. Well, he's a fraud. Yahweh is the God of the nations. So, here we have pagan people groups ruled by false gods and false religion, completely outside the people of the promise. God has not set his hesed love upon them. They are not along the messianic line. But let me tell you something. If God makes a promise to people a hundred years earlier, he will keep his promise to the detail because that's who God is. God is not fickle with his promises. God is faithful to his promises as written in the word of God. This is what Israel was meant to see. Here's what they were meant to see. Now listen carefully. Here's what they were meant to see. I'm going to use the same language, Israel, that I've promised to you. I have given them as a possession. And you are to ask this question. If God will keep his promises as we pass by, 
to a bunch of pagans with false gods who don't even know the God of Israel, who are worshiping false gods, sacrificing their own children on altars. And since he's made a promise, he will keep it. Not even one inch will he fail on those promises. If he will do that, will he not keep his promises to the covenantal people whom he has placed his name, whom he has placed his fame, whom he has placed his love, his treasured people, a people of his own possession? Will he not fulfill his promises to us? That's what we're supposed to ask. He can provide for the wicked. Will he not provide for us? He provided when we are wandering. Will he not provide when we're walking by faith? God has given us promises, and those promises are based on His faithfulness, not ours. How about Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5? We need this in light of our day. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Why? We're afraid. For he himself has said, I will never desert you. I will never ever forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? That's a promise. Or, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Wow. If God will fulfill his promises for a pagan nation, will he not fulfill his promises for the people of God? That's what Moses is saying. Come on. He's exhorting them. You trust God. He's going to keep his promises. And so, there's movement here. Faith moves. Faith is moving on the promises. And this, these promises are an anchor to our souls. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 says that. This hope, listen to the hope, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, it is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Third. Third aspect that he wants to highlight. God is capable to possess. We're going to go quickly through this. This is another surprise. You know, there are some asides in the text. Did you notice those? Where he talks a little bit about the giants in the land, and you're like, can we get on with this? And by the way, we almost want a round of applause for Andrew Dennis and his Hebrew pronunciation. That was... (laughs) 
I mean, that was really good. Thank, good job, Andrew. I, you might have, when I, you got to sign this passage, you were probably like, what in the world are you doing to me? Just trust God, brother. God is capable to possess. God is capable to possess. These are some asides. There's, there's people groups here. Do you realize, now listen, this is fascinating. The land of, of for, for Esau, can you put the land up again for me? So the land of Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Do you realize there were other people in that land? God promised it to, to uh, Esau's sons and to Lot, right? But there were other people in that land. And they were huge. They were giants. God not only just made this promise to the pagan and said, you know, you're not really my people. Figure it out. No, no. God actually in his own power accomplished the promises for pagan people and got rid of the giants out of the land. Those are the asides. So, we look at the Amim and the Horites. Look at it in verse 10. The Amim lived there formerly, a people, as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also regarded as Rephaim, but the Moabites called them Amim. The Horites formerly lived in Seir, but the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them before, from before them and settled in their place just as Israel did to the land of their possession which the Lord gave to them. So he's reminding them, look, do you realize that there were the Amim and they were huge, great, numerous, tall giants and they got them out of there? And then the people that Lot's sons also pushed out of the land were the Rephaim in verse 20. So as they go into Moab and they go into Ammon, they also were possessed by giants and they had to be pushed out. Verse 20, it is also regarded as the land of the Rephaim, for the Rephaim formerly lived in it, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim, a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. Those are the ones that the Israelites would know about, the giants the Israelites would know about. But, wait a minute, I thought Esau did the destroying. I thought the Ammonites did the destroying. This says, but the Lord destroyed them before them. Are you telling me the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob not only made promise to pagans' lands, but he, he had to be the power to keep those promises too? Yes, I am. He is capable to possess the land, but it's not Israel's land. Israel is reminded. Just as he did for the sons of Esau, verse 22, who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. So there's a paradigm here. I did it for Esau. I did it. I did it. I empowered them to conquer the giants. I did it for Moab. I did it for Ammon. I did it. I not only promised it, I did it. They're not even the covenant key bill of God. I made promises to these pagan nations, and I is the one who fulfilled these promises for the pagan nations. Oh, you of little faith, will I not do this for my covenant-keeping people? There's no more men of war. You're going to need me. Walk by faith. Then he gets nasty. He brings up the giant race. 
that the Israelites would face in the days to come. He brings up the dreaded Avim. And they're not even as dreaded as the ones who replace them. Watch this. Well, look at verse 23. And the Avim who lived in villages as far as Gaza. By the way, Gaza's in the promised land. The Kaf, the Kaftorim who came from Kaftor destroyed them and lived in their place. Listen to this. Another example of dispossession. One people lives in a land, they get booted out. The Kaftarim boot out in Gaza in Israel a people. Guess who the Kaftarim are? It's another name for the Philistines. In the providence of God, as Bloch says, the Philistines arrived in Palestine just as Israel was heading north and getting ready to take the promised land. Their dreaded enemies were taking over and hunkering down into the land and establishing their authority over the land. And the Kaftarim beat all these other giants in their terribleness. For we know that the Philistines were a huge people, a giant from the Philistine city-state called Gath. And his name was Goliath. And so God is calling out on the edge of the promised land. There's a people in there that are mightier than the people I've dispossessed. But I dispossess them for the pagans and I will dispossess them for you. And so we are thought, we are pushed forward to David. And we are to remember David. And all of these can connect together. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 26, David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, he's a teenager. Teenagers? He's a teen. He says, what will be done for the man who killed this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised, David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And they told David, you can't do it. You're a boy. You're not a man of war. That's how the Bible works. It connects. You're not a man of war. You can't fit into the iron. You can't fit into the armor. David says, I don't need it. Verse 37, the Lord, he says to the Philistine, the Lord who delivered me from the power of the lion, or the Ammonites, and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And David said to the Philistine in verse 45, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and will give the dead bodies to the, of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and of the wild beasts of the earth. And that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all the assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear. For the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hands. He's a teenaged boy. The faith of David would take the promised land. And he's a pattern of faith. 
much more is the greater David the pattern of faith for us who for the joy set before him entered into the darkness, entered into Jerusalem, seated on a donkey, ready to face the giant of sin and Satan and death. And for the joy set before him in the pattern of the faith of the lesser David, endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, having overcome the giant of sin and eternal death. He went through of it. He closed his mouth. He went through the cross. And you know how he did it? You know how he closed his mouth? And he didn't utter a threat? He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. By faith, he finished death itself. And this is the pattern of faith for Israel. And this is the pattern of faith for us today to fix our eyes upon the God of mercy, to fix our eyes on the faithful God, to fix our eyes on the God who is capable, and to fix our eyes on number four, the, uh, the God who is sovereign over the population. And we'll talk about this more, so just a little bit for today. In this passage, brothers and sisters, God is absolutely sovereign over the populations of the earth. They have their false gods. It doesn't matter to God. It doesn't. God is the one who raises up. God is the one who tears down. He is the God of the nations. God declared to Pharaoh that all the earth belonged to him in Exodus chapter 9. God declared to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are regarded as the speck of dust on the sky. Scale. So even now, even here, God is moving the nations of this world around on His chessboard. He knows what He's doing. As Luke said in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, and He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed time within the boundaries of their habitation. God is sovereign over the nations. So I have a question for you today. Can we trust Him for our nation? As far as I know, He hasn't made any promises to our nation in the Word of God. So we need to remember our past sins. We need to remember our past victories. But more than all of that, we need to remember the God who has been faithful in the past. A merciful, faithful, capable, sovereign God so that we would stop sitting still and wandering around going nowhere and we would move, we would move upon the promises of God. May we remember as we walk forward by faith, the men of war are gone. So, it is not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. May we remember like Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me.
Oh, brothers and sisters, the giants in our passage, you know what the names mean? Ghosts, terror, giants, and threatening sounds. You know all those weird names? And I'll tell you, they're nothing compared to the enemies we face, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we are to remember as we move that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We, you have perhaps been wandering. God has been gracious. He's a God of second chances, but it's time to stop spinning your wheels. Guys, it's time to head north. It's time to head north. Is God going to be faithful in our times of failure and wandering? Well, how about Peter? How did he do? Peter denied the Savior he loved three times. And then he was so depressed about it, he wanted to go back fishing. And his God built a fire made of charcoal on that beach, cooked up some fish, told Peter to come over. That's God on the beach. That's what God is like. Three times he said, do you love me? Oh, you know that I love you, said Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, head north. Feed my sheep. Brothers and sisters, he's a God of second chances. Let's move together. Men, if you could come forward, and Beth, come forward now as we move into a time of the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for such a wonderful passage in the Old Testament with a bunch of strange names, but yet it is so alive and so applicable for us as the people of God, grafted into the rich blessings of Gospel blessings promised to Abraham and his seed through faith. We're so grateful that you grafted us in. We're so grateful that we're part of the people of God. We're so grateful that you called us out. And Father, I pray that this time together would stir up faith and that we'd set our eyes upon Jesus, fix our eyes upon Jesus. the author and finisher of faith. Bless us now in this time. Holy Spirit, come. The Spirit of Christ, come. Work in a powerful, special way in this time of this family meal. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.